first verse of chapter 9. Listen to this. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Some of you aren't going to taste death until the kingdom of God comes with power. So Peter's like, well, he's probably, at this, we don't know what's going through his mind. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I was hoping for. But wait, we're all not going to experience this? We're still going to go through this suffering and, and, and some are going to die? What, what, what are you pointing to? What is this display of power that you're referring to, Jesus? And we're still asking that question today. What exactly could Jesus be referring to? He's just explained about how this life following him is, is suffering and martyrdom and it's a path of, of you know, taking up your cross and following him. But yet at the same time, he said, some of you disciples are going to see that power, a display of that power you were hoping for. What is he talking about? Here's your options. So some scholars, and again, you start reading commentary on this verse, some say, oh, Jesus is talking about this. No, you're wrong. Jesus is talking about that. No, that's not right. Jesus is talking about this. So some of them say this is talking about his return. This is his second coming. And of course, we think of that and we're like, wait a second. That means some of the disciples would still have to be alive right now, right? And it's been like 2,000 years. So that's probably not the one because they all died. We got like a record of all their deaths. Some say, no, it's the destruction of the temples, what Jesus is talking to. That would have been a huge moment to the Jews when the, when the temples destroyed, and that was a display of God's power. Other people say, no, 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 he's talking about Pentecost. That's when he's going to return in power, because if you remember, the Holy Spirit comes and empowers all the apostles right there to do ministry in a special way. Some say, no, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the ascension. He said this display of power is going to come. He's talking about when he ascends into heaven. That's the display of power. He conquers death and ascends into heaven. People say, no, he's talking about his resurrection. The resurrection is right around the corner. He's going to die and he's going to rise again. He just talked about it in the text. And you can, again, read page after page after page. It's so complicated. Sometimes when there's a really complicated moment like this in, in Scripture, I think the answer is usually the most obvious answer. The simplest answer is sometimes the correct answer. I think this display of power, Jesus is promising that some of his disciples are going to witness, is the very next thing that happens in Scripture. It's a moment called the transfiguration. And it's a moment that ultimately will blow our minds. So I started this sermon off with a complicated concept because it is complicated. And we're going to study a moment that is super mind-blowing. It's where we're at today. Some sermons are easier to preach than others. Some <laughs> sermons are easier to understand than others. But this is the transfiguration. This moment in which the deity of Jesus is unveiled before some, not all, of the disciples. Let's study it. Let's take it just a, a verse or two at a time. Let's start at verse number two. This is the transfiguration. It says, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. So now, if you've been studying along in the, in the Gospel of Mark with us, something just happened that's never happened before. He has described to us a, a transition of time in a, in, in a measurement of days. What does he normally do? 
This is the immediately gospel. Remember, when we're reading in the gospel of Mark, he says, this happens, and then immediately, this happens, and then immediately, this, it's like everything immediately happens. He's trying to get us through the gospel as quickly as he can. But there's this one spot right here where he says, after six days, we would anticipate at this point that Mark would say, and then immediately he was transfigured. But that's not what happened. It says, after six days, this is so different than the word immediately. He slows us down. After six days, he takes them up on a high mountain. Well, to a first century Jew reading this, this would have sounded really, really familiar. After six days, he's on a mountain, and God's about to speak to him there. What's this sound like? What's, this is like Moses on Mount Sinai. If we, every Jew, this would immediately triggered that memory you know, being raised, reading Exodus over and over and over and over all the time, studying it every year, going to festivals to memorize it. They would have thought about this moment in which Moses was on a mountain. And after six days, God met with him there, and it, there was a cloud there. It's all the same ingredients that was back in the book of Exodus. And so Mark is slowing us down in a very strategic way to remind people and to, to, to bring things to our mind about how God typically has communicated to his people in the past. So after six, day, they're, six days, they're up on this mountain. It's Peter and James and John. They're with Jesus, and they're there according to Luke. Now remember, this moment is not just in Mark. It's in Luke. You can read about it there. He gives us some additional details. It's also in Matthew. He gives us a few more details. Luke tells us that they go up on this high mountain to pray. This is a prayer retreat. He's, he's, he's wanting to get away from the, the masses, and so he takes a handful of the disciples. We consider Peter, James, and John like the inner circle of the 12. He takes them up on a high mountain to pray. We've seen Jesus do this by himself several times up to this point. This time he's taken a few of the disciples to go pray with him up on this high mountain. What mountain was it? We don't know. We can guess, though. We can take a really good guess. They were just in Caesarea Philippi, and, in the, and when, when, you, when you bust out all the maps with all the nerds, and you start looking at all the maps, and Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi is right there, there's a very obvious giant mountain in that neck of the woods. Today, it's known as Mount Hermon, uh, and uh, Fun fact, if you go to Israel today and, and take a tour and you feel like skiing, this is the one mountain that has a ski resort in Israel. So what a crazy experience that would be. Like you're out skiing with your spouse or whatever. Oh, look, honey, there's where the transfiguration happened. <laughs> like how does that go down on Mount Hermon? So if I ever go to Israel, I'm, I'm, I'm going skiing. Luke also gives us another detail that they have been traveling uh, up this mountain. We know that mountain's a pretty good-sized mountain, and if you're walking up it, you're going to need to take breaks. They would have to stop and sleep, and that's exactly what they did. They had been stopping and sleeping and, and praying, and they were in a heavy sleep. And when they awake from this really heavy sleep, Jesus was transfigured before them. I keep saying that like that as if, you know, when we were, oh, he was transfigured. What does that mean? What does it mean that he was transfigured? 
You know, when I don't know what something means, I like to go back and look at the original language and see how, see how you actually know this Greek word. We've all heard it before. This, this Greek word is metamorpho, and so it's where we get our word metamorphosis, if you remember. And so it, meta means to change. Morph is shape. He changed shape. He was transfigured before them. Well, in what sense did he change shape? This word is only used four times in the New Testament. Three of them are taken up in Luke's account of this moment, Mark's account of this moment, and Matthew's account of this moment. There's only one other moment this word is used anywhere. It's in the, it's in the book of Romans. I'm sorry, there's two more times. He uses it in Romans and 2 Corinthians. Paul talks about our spiritual transformation into the likeness of Christ. And so it can be used in a spiritual way, but this transfiguration that takes place in this moment doesn't seem to be spiritual. It's very much physical. There is a physical change that takes place. Let's continue reading so that we can kind of wrap our minds around this physical change. It says, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. <laughs> I love that line. Like, no one can bleach their clothes this white. This was crazy white. I always thought, like, if I was the CEO of Clorox, I would utilize this as part of my, part of my ad campaign. Like, no one can get clothes this white until now. <laughs> Clorox metamorphosis. I don't know. They were intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them, not even your mama. Uh, I'm sorry, I told you I was fussy. This is making me feel better. When we look at Luke's account, we look at Matthew's account, they give us a few more details. It's, again, it's helpful to look at their, their details. Luke says it this way, his face was altered. Okay, so now we know this change in form has honed in on not just his clothes, but also his face. It was altered. When we look at Matthew's account of this, he, he zooms that in a little bit more. He says, his face shone like the sun. So you can imagine, again, they were coming out of this heavy sleep, so we can assume it was dark out. They were probably sleeping at night. And all of a sudden, they look at Jesus, his white clothes, his shining face, I mean, it's got to be blowing their mind. I mean, we just had a firework display last night, right? I think of, I think of how you're outside at a firework display, and, you know, it's, it's dark, it's pitch black, you're getting drowsy because you can't stay up late, but your kids really want to be there. You're more interested in watching your kids than you are the firework display, but it goes from dark to just lighting everything up. I think it was a moment kind of like this. It was a really drastic change in light, and it was it was coming from Jesus' own face. It must have been incredible. Let's continue in verse 4. And that, I'm sorry. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So all of a sudden, his clothes are white. His face is shining like the sun. And Elijah is there, and Moses is there, and they're having a conversation. You talk about things that you don't expect to see when you wake up out of a deep sleep. 
Why are Elijah and Moses there? What are they talking about? We got so many questions. If you're like me, you read a moment like this in, in scripture and you just have to stop and just start asking questions. Like how did they know that was Elijah and Moses? They didn't have like, you know, they didn't even have the flannel graph back then, right? They didn't have anything. How do they know this is, did they have name tags on? How did they know that was Elijah? How did they know that was Moses? I don't know. These are just the things that run through my mind. I don't know if they run through your mind when you're, when you're reading scripture, which, by the way, we don't know what Jesus looks like either. I mean, BG Jesus is just a figment of our imagination, right? All those oil paintings, that's not really what Jesus looks like. So we're going to need a different way to identify him too. Um, but yeah, we're going to, I would assume we're going to know. And this was a moment like that. And they knew there's Jesus, and clearly there's Elijah, and clearly there's Moses. I mean, it was made known to them, likely how just in the same way that God has made it known to Peter at this point that Jesus is the Christ. You know, he, he also made it known to them, this is Elijah, and this is Moses. And they're there all having a conversation. And I think that their physical presence has a ton of meaning. Their literal physical presence there has a ton of symbolic meaning to anyone reading this passage because Moses and Elijah are two names that everybody would have known. This, in a way, can, can summarize the two divisions that people in that day would have seen in Scripture in the Old Testament. So we, now when we, when we open up our Bibles and we look at all the different books in there, we have these different genres and things like that. Well, they, it really boiled down to just two genres for Hebrew people in the first century. They saw the law, and then there's this section, the prophets. And Moses and Elijah would have been two of the greatest representatives of those two categories. You got Moses, who penned the law, and you have Elijah, who is like the coolest prophet ever. I mean, he would have been like one of the most well-known prophets. And so uh, these were rock stars to the Jewish faith. Of course, another thing would have come to mind, I mentioned, again, they... There's a lot of symbolism taking place here. They're up on a high mountain. God is, uh, is about to speak to them there. There is a cloud there that we're going to see here momentarily. Well, these are both moments that Elijah and Moses would have experienced. Again, Moses on the mountain with God. Elijah had a moment like that too on a high mountain in which God speaks to him. And you could even throw in there, their obedience to God cost them dearly. They suffered. And then here's Christ, the one who just talked about his path of suffering. And he's in good company. They know what it's like to suffer. But what were they talking about? How much of the conversation did they get to uh, listen to? Well, Luke tells us, actually, we don't have to speculate here. Luke says in chapter 9, verse 31, they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. They were speaking of his death. They were talking about the passion of the Christ that he, was about, that he is about to go through in our study, right? His suffering, his death that he's just been talking about with the disciples, that's now what he's talking about with Elijah and Moses. Again, I just can't imagine how starstruck they must have been in that point in time. This is Elijah. This is Moses. I mean, they've been living with Jesus for, for you know, uh, several months and years now, so, so I mean, 
you know, the, the, that would have worn off a little bit with them, you think, but then he goes and walks on water and they're starstruck again. But they got Moses and Elijah there now too. I mean, have you ever been starstruck? Like, you know how you feel when you're starstruck? Uh, if you've ran into someone famous, I bet you most of you have a story where you've ran into someone unexpectedly that like, oh man, that's somebody. I, I ran in with Drew. We ran into Scottie Pippen at the Chicago airport once. And I was like a 13-year-old girl at a Bieber concert. You should have seen us. Like, I, Drew and I were out of Starbucks at 6 in the morning. We got a, tra- we got a flight, we're, we're, and, and Chris missed it. We're, we'll never let him live it down. <laughs> he wasn't with us. He was with us, but he wasn't in that moment. But I'm, I'm sitting there, and then Scotty Pippen appears out of nowhere. And I got my coffee, and I'm like, that's Scotty Pippen. I was a teenager in the 90s, and that's Scotty Pippen right there. I was freaking out. Now, do I talk to him? Can I touch him? <laughs> like, what, what am I going to do? And I, I, I'm, I'm, get, I'm sitting down. I'm getting back up again. That's Scotty Pippen. And I'm like, I'm not. He, if I go try to talk to him, he'll be like, away from me, peasant. And he would be right to say that. I couldn't even be mad. And so I did the only thing I knew to do. I just got my phone out very quietly, started snapping pictures posted it on Facebook, and walked away. (laughs) I was not worthy. There's probably two kinds of people when uh, it comes to being starstruck. The kind of person who has to go touch them and talk to them and interact with them, and then the type that just takes the picture and walks away and then brags to their friends that they saw Scottie Pippen. What kind of person is Peter? I'll let you guess. Let's read 5 and 6. Here's what Peter does when he's starstruck. It says... And Peter said to Jesus, he interrupts the moment. They're having a conversation. <laughs> and Peter inserts himself into the conversation. Here's what he says, so great. And, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. <laughs> That's one of my favorite moments of the entire Book of Mark. It's just hilarious, right? Peter's just like, big gulps, huh? All right. <laughs> you know, he has no idea what to say. And it's, it's fascinating to me when you read commentary. I love reading commentary. I read commentaries every week. And scholars are all over the place. They're trying to, like, formulate ideas. This is symbolic. Peter, Peter is mentioning tents. He was a tent maker. But let me, the Feast of Booths was around the corner. They'll come up with all these reasons why, like, Peter was saying something smart here, and he comes out and says in the text, remember, this is Peter's account written, by, written down by Mark. He tells Mark, oh, yeah, I had no idea what I was talking about. I just, like, words just started vomiting out of my mouth, and I couldn't stop myself. I didn't know what to say. I was terrified. I just said words, and that's the words I said. <laughs> I love that moment. Uh, there may be a spiritual meaning there. I've completely missed it and cannot give it to you, so I don't know. Let's keep on going. Verses 7 and 8, God's about to speak with him, and that's what we really don't want to miss here. It says, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. 
So just as in the days of Moses, when he's up on Mount Sinai, and after six days, a cloud settles on Mount Sinai, and God communicates with Moses, just like that moment, and, uh, and like God would, how God would often speak to the prophets there, Elijah was on that mountain, he spoke to Elijah. Now here they're on this mountain, and God communicates in a way that Peter, James, and John can understand. He says to Jesus, you are my beloved son, Listen, he says to the disciples, rather, listen to them. It, it, it does remind us of when he spoke at his baptism, though. That's what I accidentally said. When the, at his baptism, right, he comes up out of the water, and what does God say? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Here he says to this, the disciples, listen to him. You are right. He is the Christ. I am confirming that notion that I put into your brain. It's interesting, Matthew, he refers to this moment. He uses the word vision. This is like a vision. And so I think there's, we are definitely meant to see some symbolism here. The message from God to the disciples is listen to Jesus. You're used to listening to Moses your whole life. He penned the law. We follow the law. The law is God's word. And Moses fades away. You're, you're used to listening to my prophets like Elijah. I would tell them to communicate certain things to my people over the centuries, and now Elijah has faded away. There's only Jesus now. Listen to him. This is how I am communicating to you. If you remember the opening of the book of Hebrews when we studied it, what did it say? It said, long ago, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, like Moses and Elijah, they both would have been considered prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So this mountaintop experience, it was meant to confirm that Jesus was in fact this Christ. It unveiled his deity. It was a display of power and it probably silenced even people like Peter in the moment but not for long he's still got questions this is why I, I love Peter this is why Peter is so relatable because he blurts out the things that we often do he gets confused in the same way that we do and so you know it's nice to be able to watch someone fumble through life and then learn from that so we don't have to maybe fumble as much Right? Well, the disciples still got questions. Look at verses 9 through 10. It says, as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. So the messianic secret is meant to still be kept right now. Everybody's got the wrong idea. I don't want this to spread prematurely. And this is, needs to unfold according to God's sovereign will. And so it's going to come out, but just not yet. So just keep a lid on this. But they're trying to still process the fact that he's going to die and rise again. They still have to make sense of that. And so they're still talking amongst themselves like, yeah, but what does it mean that he's going to, die and he's going to rise again. What does this resurrection mean for us? It's just him? See, every Jew, they, especially according to the scribes the, of the Pharisees, 
They, they believed there would be this general resurrection, as in everyone Whoever was will be resurrected at the end of time, which we still believe, mind you. But they didn't have a category for a resurrection of just the Messiah. So wait, just the Messiah is going to die. We already got a problem with that, but okay. Uh, but just the Messiah is going to rise again? How do we, how do we make sense of this? Then, then what would happen? If we're all not going to rise, if it's just the Messiah, what's the purpose of that. I love that they ask those questions. Those are the same things you and I need to continue to make sense of if we are to understand the gospel correctly. So they flesh it out a little bit more. Look, look at here in verses 11 through 13. And, and so they, they speak up. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they please, as it is written of him. Okay. I know that's, that's, that's like word salad right there. We've got to make sense. They're, they're asking questions. They're trying to make sense of this information about the life and office of the Christ. And so they're saying, well, wait a second, the way we understand it, you're saying that you're going to die and, and you are going to rise again. But does it, like before the kingdom comes in power, when we listen to the scribes of the Pharisees and all their teaching that we've been listening to our whole lives, they're saying that Elijah has to come first and he's going to restore all things and then this Messiah is going to come. How, how do we, how do we, Makes sense of all this. And, and maybe they even remembered where the scribes of the Pharisees got this. It's in the Bible. You can look at Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And so it's in there. How do we make sense of this? Right? Elijah? Well, Elijah did have an interesting death, didn't he? He just ascended in chariots in the sky and, and like, he has like a, 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 yeah, a mysterious death. He didn't die typically like everybody else. He was just like taken. So, so what did they believe about Elijah? Well, they believed three things. He would arrive before the Messiah. And they were able to, to again, look at Old Testament prophecies. And they confirmed these three things. He, he would arrive before the Messiah. He would lead people in a spirit of repentance. And he would identify the Messiah. So these three things were what they were looking for in Elijah. But Jesus is saying, he's going to come in power, and, and he's going to die and rise again. They're like, where's Elijah? Well, I guess you could say, you know, Elijah was just there on, on the mountaintop. But he, did he lead people into repentance? So here's what Jesus says. Elijah has come. In Matthew, we're told a little bit more. The, we, we know how the disciples took that. It says, then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. And of course, when Luke introduces John the Baptist, he introduces him in his gospel as one who comes in the spirit of Elijah. So John the Baptist fulfills this prophetic role of Elijah. Jesus teaches us how to interpret this. And it says they did, he, he says they did to him whatever they pleased. And we know that that did happen with John the Baptist, right? He was put in jail, he was locked up, and eventually his head was served on a platter at a banquet for entertainment. He was beheaded. 
Jesus has just pointed out that, hey, listen, this office of the Christ that's been prophesied, you're leaving out all the negatives. You have to go through all the negatives to get to the positive. This forerunner, Elijah, it was fulfilled in John the Baptist, and John the Baptist was executed. The forerunner was killed. In the same way, I'm going to walk through my mission as the Christ and suffer many things and die and rise again. And you, as my followers, you're going to walk down this, this path that will include suffering and it will include martyrdom. And it's going to end in resurrection, the ultimate resurrection. So here's, here's the point of it all. To summarize it all, what they are witnessing here, what they are experiencing here in the transfiguration is they are getting to see that glimpse of power that they anticipated. This was to confirm to them in their minds, you are going to see and experience the kingdom of God coming in power. Some of you are going to see it really soon. They got to see it at transfiguration, but we will all see it in the end. And so Peter, when he heard about all this humiliation that takes place in the suffering and death of Messiah, he just couldn't understand how that ended in victory. But what we learn in the gospel is that Jesus, through his humiliation, he is exalted as king and savior of this kingdom that he has ushered in. This is the, this is the upside down thinking that the gospel uh, does to us. That through this loss, we win. And so this, this transfiguration is teaching them that, yes, there is power. And it's power in a way that you can't even fully comprehend. You're going to see death. You're going to see resurrection. You're going to see ascension. And everyone will see that return. We're all going to see power. But it's power in a way that doesn't make sense to the world. When we think of earthly power, it doesn't even come close to the power of God. It transcends those things. It's a very limited scope of understanding when it comes to power. God is so powerful, he can even use the bad to do good. And he can use the worst thing that's ever happened. A sinless man was executed, and he can make that the best thing that has ever happened. It's the best thing that's ever happened to you and I because it saves us from our sins and it brings us near to God for eternity. Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank you for this moment in the Gospel of Mark, the transfiguration, this moment that it blows our mind. When we try to imagine it, we fall short, inevitably fall short. When we try to answer all the questions, we can't fully do it. But Lord, your, your word, it just weaves together so harmoniously. And when we read it from Genesis to Revelation, we see these themes all throughout Scripture that teach us one big story. You have overcome the world. You entered this sinful and fallen creation. You, you went into the darkness, and your light has overcome it, even through death. Lord, help this understanding of the gospel to change how we think. Lord, that we can persevere through the darkness ourselves, that we can put sin to death in our own lives, and that we can have this victory through loss that we receive through the gospel. 
Lord, help us to focus our hearts and minds on your sacrifice, Lord, that we can live sacrificially into your glory alone. And it's in your name we pray.